Welcome back to Portrait of an Editor. I am Francis Lombard. In this episode, I first have a one-on-one conversation with Morgan Rosenblum, Managing Editor and Art Director of Heavy Metal Magazine. Then for the last part, Johnny Handler, Morgan's writing and business partner, joins us to talk about their series Stable from Heavy Metal and Winds of Numacera from Dark Horse. A reminder, I've been conducting interviews since 2017, and you can find the earlier ones on the Portrait of an Editor Patreon page. It's just a buck a month to join. Now here's my conversation with Morgan Rosenblum. Enjoy. Morgan, welcome to Portrait of an Editor. The first question I want to ask, and this is already going to have us bouncing all over the place, but how was WonderCon? It was great. I haven't done a con since, I would say, before the pandemic. I used to do... A lot, you know, I did like the Comic Con circuits from New York Comic Con to C2E2 to Fan Expo in Canada. It was great. WonderCon was awesome. It was just great to be around like, you know, fans of all things sci fi, fantasy, comic. Uh, you know, it's it's fun when you can be like, it's like going to like a concert, you know, when, when you're around people that, that like the same things you do um, and aren't afraid to show it. If anything, they're like excited to, to show it off and get really get into it. Um, I love cosplay. Not so much dressing up myself. I do like dressing up, but I like seeing it a lot. And um, it's just great to talk with convention goers and fans and find out what they're reading, what they're into, what's piquing their interests. I just find like at a con and I've talked to uh, every so often we talk about this of just the, the energy there. I, I have a big smile most of the time. It's, it's just, I don't know. It's a, it's a great experience and just the energy and the enthusiasm and just the passion and just the, there's a whole group of people there that like this, you know, everybody's just into something similar, the same thing or whatever. So was that there? I mean, it wasn't dampered anything by mask wearing or anything or COVID. No, it was back. Yeah. It seemed for me, it it felt very much back. Like I think all booth goers uh, were required to wear masks and stuff, but I don't, I don't believe that the, uh, like anyone, like all the fans or just like a, you know, the, what do you, what do you call like a, a convention goer? Is there like uh, a, fans? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, att- like, attendees. Like, yeah, the attendees, I guess. <laughs> uh, like, yeah, they weren't required to. So they got to show off their, their mask. You could see a lot of their smiles. I mean, some of them were obviously wearing it. A good chunk of them I would say were, but um, it, it felt, I mean, people were ready to interact and uh, it, it felt pretty normal to me. I was wearing the mask the whole time, which is fine, but I'm also a very like outgoing person. And um mm-hmm. So it, not that it's like part of my my role at, at heavy metal, but I like you know working the booth almost like as a salesman to a degree, and and like I have like a whole system where like when someone walks by, I'm like, what's up? How's it going? Or how are you enjoying the con? Just to engage with them as opposed to just being like, hey, do you want to see what I have to show you? Uh-huh. I just start talking to them. I'll comment on like their you know their outfit, or I usually ask them like, hey, you know, have you checked out? A, is there any booth that I should go check out when I get my break because I can't just go and explore the whole thing? That you know I'll have only limited time. What do I have to check out? And then based on their response, if they're like, oh, the Star Wars lightsaber booth. I'm like, oh, cool. And then they probably like sci-fi. So I'm like, oh, you like sci-fi? Do you know about heavy metal? We got a really cool sci-fi story that just came out. And I'm like, show them that. So based on their answer, it's like a kind of a natural progression into, let me tell you about what the cool stuff we're working on. I mean, as a managing editor and art director, now that cons are back, what, what do you, what's your objective when you go to the con? Because you're, you're there to work. Well, I, I usually, I mean, it's, it's to interact, I would say, more than anything else, to get the word out about, uh, you know, he- about heavy metal. Because a lot of people, you know, that I would say like 30 years and older are familiar, even probably 40 years and older are familiar with heavy metal just because it's been around for a while. But the younger generation, they're like, what? You mean the music genre? And we're like, no. Um, so it's, it's a combination of, of 
interacting with established, you know, diehards, and then also bringing on new new viewership, new new readers. The overall goal, but we speak on panels and things like that. Um, about like, I'm also a writer as well, so I have several titles with heavy metal um, that are coming out. One just one just came out called Stable which is doing really well. And so we did a panel there to promote the book and just kind of talk about the creation process of it. And um, all four of the creators on the team were involved. Did you go in with, as a managing editor or art director, trying to find, um, well, art director, are you looking for artists? Are you trying to engage? Yeah, that's always with, a thing. Do you, have you set up meetings or are you sort of just winging it? Um, or are there people that you know that you haven't had a chance to contact that you're hoping maybe you'll run into the show? Are you out there on the floor just sort of shaking hands with creators and trying to, you know, get phone numbers or talk of talk about scheduling or, you know, or the availability, you know, what, what, where heavy metal's going, you know, just pitch that as a publisher or is that sort of what kind I mean, do you, I guess, what kind of prep do you do before going in and then, you know, what is your, do you have an agenda or do you just sort of see where it takes, the tide takes you? Well, as far as like being present to receive a submission or talk with potential creators, that's, I mean, the internet is is a beautiful tool for that. So I don't need to physically be, you know, in front of someone and setting up a meeting. Like if I'm, it wouldn't preclude someone from coming to me via, like through email or even social media. I get that some people are like, yeah, I have a, I have a new book I want to submit. Are you receiving submissions? I'd be like, sure, send it over. Heavy Metal is always pretty much looking for new stuff. That's like what we pride ourselves on is like trying to find the diamonds in the rough, right? And break talent, meaning like break them into the industry. Um, so it doesn't need to, I, I don't go to Comic-Con to answer your question specifically. Like I don't go into Comic-Con trying to set up meetings per se, unless, for example, like I know ahead of time that like the contact that I've already probably made is going to be there um, or someone like asked me directly. But um, as far as like scouting and recruiting goes, whether it's trying to find new artists or new writers, in a lot of cases, I always go by Artist Alley, right? Every time um, just to see like in person, you know, but uh, for the most part, like I use like ArtStation and um, like Instagram and people's personal portfolio. Like when you follow someone on it, even on Instagram, this is just kind of how the algorithm's built, I guess. Uh, it'll show you others with similar kind of content. And then I usually just click on the bottoms of a few of them just to see. And sometimes it's like, you know, super famous artists. And I'm like, oh, okay, I know this person or they're under contract with Marvel exclusively or whatever. But then, you know, I'll be like, oh, who's this? And then I'll, I, I have like a little group with um, some of the other editors where I'll forward it to them and say, what do you guys think of this guy? And it's not even like, I don't even know if they're available or anything like that. It's just like, I just came across this talent. What do you think? And then if people are like, oh, yes, that's awesome. At that point, I'll reach out and be like, hey, just wanted to check in on your availabilities and the managing editor at Heavy Metal. Love your stuff. Maybe we can find a way to collaborate or get on a project together. And then if they have a manager, they'll loop me in. And if they're kind of flying, representing themselves, they'll just talk to me about that. So that's generally the process. <laughs> How was Artist Alley for WonderCon this year? It was great. Um, there was like two that I think we're, we're talking to now that we found there as like potential artists for an upcoming. Was it, was it a decent size? Was yeah. it, yeah, it was just. Yeah, we're just very selective. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it, yeah, it was, uh, I would say there's like, I don't know, maybe 80 different artist alley booths. I'm just, I'm just throwing that number out there. And, and, you know, like they used to have that like game where it's like count the jelly or guess the jelly number of jelly beans. <laughs> In like the jar i was terrible yeah. so i could be watch it be like 10 or, or like 400 i have no idea i would uh, say it. i'm always comparing like 
I've always been impressed. I took some time off of going to New York Comic Con, but New York Comic Con always does a great job with their artist alley and where they place it and how they just really make it easy to get around. So for me, maybe because of my limited experience over the last couple of years, if that's the one con I go to, I always wonder how it compares because it, it really seems we're talking with artists in there and then also editors who have to, you know, go down there and try to, you know, and, and try to engage and get some time with people that it seems to be like, they've done a great job and they maintain it, even though the Javits center has been rebuilt for what it's been the last 10 years, they've been rebuilding it or something. So it gets moved around, but I was just wondering, you know, how WonderCon handles it, how people sometimes talk about where San Diego, the status of Artist Alley at San Diego too. And I was just wondering, you know, with Con starting up again and coming out of COVID, how are, you know, where, where, what's the status of Artist Alley throughout the world, I guess is my my wonder right now. Well, I can only speak to the specific yeah. I've been exposed to because I haven't done, like I said, like I haven't done a huge tour. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah like around the, the globe or let alone the nation in a little while but new york in particular i feel like they used to to my memory they would put artist alley like off to the right wing like all the way over so yeah. it, was, it was like actually separate so you'd actually have to go through this long hallway that was separate from all the ma- major you know more commercial stuff and that's when you got into like the niche artists only artist alley which kind of felt cool so i hear what you're saying with that in WonderCon. Uh, contrastly, it was like kind of mixed in. I mean, it, they were all, it was focused. Like there, there were several aisles that were all um, just artist alley, but they were, it was still like in the same gigantic room or space, right. That the whole convention center was. Um, you didn't have to like go down like a secret hallway or anything like that to get there. I guess I should step back a little. You're managing editor and art director for heavy metal magazine. So in other publishers, that's two different people. What are your duties? Because it's probably a lot because uh, what is probably over a year ago, Heavy Metal Magazine itself went monthly. So there's even more work there. And I was talking to Joe Illich about that, and especially doing a an anthology book. There's a lot of extra work uh, that comes with you know 144 pages or so of <laughs> anthology, and also the publishing of you know of series too. So what you know, what are your duties, I guess, at, at heavy metal nowadays? Well, With those two, two huge titles. Yeah, two separate roles. Um, I'll mm-hmm. do the managing. I mean, I'll do the uh, art director first because that was the one you just asked me about. Yeah. Art direction is kind of what it sounds like. I, I'm directing artwork in a lot of cases, primarily on, you know, anything from covers. Kinda, so this is kind of fun. One of the things I get to do is actually kind of come up with the story ideas for certain covers. So rather than just being like, let's do a pinup of one character that's just kind of like a poster thing. It'll, uh, some of the covers that you, you'll see have like actual stories to it. It looks like a scene out of something. Uh-huh. So I'll, I'll write out a bunch of different um, concepts. Like, okay, I wanna, I imagine like, imagine a dragon in the foreground and then like uh, several horses, like all kind of like uh, grouped together through some sort of contraption. Like a harness is like dragging the snow away from the camera. Its jaws like broken and its tongue is slack, you know? out of it and and we see in the distance like there's like a some ruined castle like across some like narrow drawbridge so and then there's like a some sort of dragon slayer leading that those horses to that right and it's like oh that's an interesting idea and so when um so in some cases I'll, i mock that cover up like i'll do the layouts for it and then i'll create several of these and then try to find the right artist to execute each of those type of covers Something else might be like, if we know we wanted to do a cover specific to a 
a specific um, series that we're doing, like IP or, or story. So if, rather than, you know, like, uh, what's another good one? We have a new series called, or we had this, this one thing called um, Black Ruins of um, Aramur. And um, we, it's, it's based off of a, a Wonderwork podcast that we did, which is all audio. So there's zero visuals. So I had to try to craft what that scene we wanted to, to showcase for the cover would be. And that was like one of the most popular covers that we printed recently and really was received well by Kai Carpenter. And uh, he, he even told me, like, when I, when I would work with him, he's like, you're so specific with your vision. It's great because st the artist still gets to do all the leg, you know, work on it and really craft, like, the design of the armor and, uh, um, you know, like, what, what the weapons look like and all that fun stuff. But it gives them a clear vision as to what to do. Because when I first, this is kind of interesting, when I first came on at wanting to do that kind of stuff in the art direction, um, at the time, Matt, who's my boss and a good friend, he's also my partner in Hero Projects, was just kind of like, just let them do what they want and just kind of like edit it based off of that. And so we, we brought on an artist and um, they're like, what do I do? What, what do you want? And, and Matt was like, just tell them they could do anything. And I was like, okay, you, what, you pitch me, what do you want? And they're like, um, I'd really appreciate a little direction. Like, I, I don't, like, I can come up with some stuff, but like, you want like a mermaid cover? Do you want or whatever? So I was like, cool, I have this whole little book that I can kind of like a little the worksheet that I came up with with some ideas. What do you think? I sent it to him. He's like, oh, this is great. This is like a whole, like, I can choose all these other ones. Now, this one speaks to me and this one speaks to me, which is kind of fun. So uh, fast forward now, I'm doing like a good chunk of the covers uh, for our direction. And then also in the, a, a bunch of the stories that I edit, I generally will rework a lot of the layouts with the artists. Because um, as I'm reading the scripts that I get, I, uh, you know, it, it's very specific, but I also think I, I'm pretty, I've been told by artists that I have a very good uh, eye and um, sort of vision for how certain stories should be told cinematically. So if I, if I look at a page and I notice that, you know, I'm like, we're using the same camera angle a lot here. Let's change the perspective, especially in like scenes that maybe talk heavy. You don't want to have just like talking heads, right? So you'd want to have, um, you know, maybe place the camera, right? The camera is you, the viewer, like sort of like, pull it back so that you're actually watching it from like a low angle. And it just kind of makes the story a little bit more interesting. So things like that for the art direction side. Probably discovered that maybe it's easier to provide limitations, to provide sort of a direction or sort of boundaries for the artist. And you probably get delivered something a little more than instead of like, go, hey, just do whatever you want to do. Because then it's like too many choices the whole thing about why are there yeah. only like six color choices for a car because if you had 10 the the buyer would never know what the you know which one they really wanted or something so you you know that's why you're limited so do you feel that that really made you realize that that light bulb went on that like if i have put the artist sort of within i understand what they are what they like doing and then give them some limitations maybe they really they focus in and they get the passion really kicks in I think this might be a good analogy. So I was, I, as a managing editor now, I, one of the things I do is I read scripts a lot and, uh, mm -hmm. and stuff like that. I, I remember reading this one page. I, I couldn't tell you who wrote it, and I, nor would I, because I wouldn't want to throw the person under the bus if I'm, I'm you know, really negatively critiquing a submission. But the, the, the script was pretty, when they were describing the protagonist, they were like any age, any, ge any gender, any, you know, hair color. It was like, it was so, I couldn't even envision the character in the story because it was clear that the writer just was trying to get across to me that like this could be anyone or you could cast a female to play this lead or a male but because it lacked that there was no like real personality to like i could not 
envision in my mind what the character as I'm reading the script and immediately it sucked me out of it and was like no this isn't gonna work um it also that like reading that even taught me a lesson which is like if you know part of what makes a writer really great is their ability to to paint the picture in your mind right yes and I think the same thing kind of goes with like with art too like as an art director you want to give them like you just said some direction uh something to to build towards like something to inspire them almost as Uh opposed to just come up with something random and and submit it to me and whatever you feel like, you know, if that's the case, they'll just kind of doodle and sketch whatever they want, which could still be great, mind you. Um, but in some cases, we, I think we also want to make it specific to some of the things that we're doing. Right. Um, so now we yeah. have like A and B covers. Usually a is like more traditional, um, artwork that you would see throughout the years. And then the B stuff is like more specific to series and, you know, stories that we're actually putting out there. So that'll it'll be like a you know a, a truly painted scene or something like that from one of our stories like Tarna or like um, Star Wars or something like that or Ram God whatever it may be. Well, you also have deadlines that, and so a deadline on top of like some direction probably makes it easier for life easier for everybody instead of because if you have you guys are doing at least two covers a month, um, sometimes four I think. Mm, um, if the, yeah, there's like extra variants or something like that. You still have, yeah. covers is like the, the the thing that I I worry about the least. Oh, okay. Because, because it's just one piece as opposed to like a an ongoing serial from the same artist. We're, mm-hmm. we're, we can schedule out our our cover artist well in advance, and we yeah. do. How far out? I mean, it, I've I've done it where it's like six months in advance in some cases, but we've also done it where like, you know, we had booked the artist for something closer to. And then uh, they had a pushback slate. So then it gets a little dangerously close. Like, oh, are we going to finish this cover in time? But covers usually allow us to, you know, they can be moved and kind of things. But the harder thing, and this is also one of my responsibilities as managing editor, is making sure that the, the sequential work, right, the actual story content, the interiors, that those are finished. And because those are generally done monthly, right? So it, uh, in the past, Heavy Metal was 99.9% all one and done anthologies. It was like new story, new yeah. Metal and move on now what we've been trying to do and i think it's it's actually really helped with our brand's resurgence and like just the magazine sort of making a comeback is we're identifying certain stories that are really powerful and um that fans and readers are gravitating towards or have gravitated to like tarna for instance that was turned into a series right so we kept coming back to it and it's got like the long form overarching narrative but then it also has they're structured in a way that you can read sort of like pick up at chapter three and not feel like shit, I didn't see the previous one, so I'm screwed. Um, that's been like a big thing for us is making sure that like each episode has a self-contained aspect to it so that you, if you're not familiar with the character or the storyline, by the end of that chapter, you're, you're like, you got a full little episode where you, oh, cool, that was fun, was adventure or whatnot. And also I want to, you know, read more of that. And then what we do is so like after a series runs its course, so if a serial goes from like chapter one through chapter eight, and after over the course of like eight different issues, mm-hmm. following its its completion of the arc for like season one or whatnot, we put it into a trade, which is pretty cool. So then you can read that whole trade on the side. So getting back to like the deadline aspect of that, that's tough because then you're managing usually like the sequential artist, the illustrator who's you know doing um, everything from layouts through pencils through inks. Some mm-hmm. people they'll do their own colors. Generally speaking, we have a separate colors for that, and then you have the letter. Then you have the, the proofreader, myself, the editor. That's kind of like, like one part project manager and one part 
you know, story editor slash art director throughout the entire process, making sure that everything is submitted in a, a steady fashion. I personally found that you don't want to just like rely on an artist to just, now there are plenty of artists that can do this, no problem, like where they just kind of wait and then submit to you all, all at once on deadline. But in the, in some cases, a lot of artists, they're, you know, uh, not the best with deadlines all the time. Again, I'm not speaking for all artists. It's just that like, as I'm a creative person myself, so I've always found that like having, you know, uh, deliverable submissions at the end of every week or something like that, that sort of forced me to be accountable and not just kind of like, oh, I can do double work next week or triple work the week after. But uh, as managing editor, that's something you set up is that the sort of uh, make sure there's a stage thing at the end of the uh, each week. And are you yeah, Go ahead. When I want to kick off a project, one of the first things I do like the, is like, okay, cool. Excited to have you on board. Let's quickly go over uh, a target production schedule. I reverse engineer it. So I'm like, if this is the date we need to have it by print deadline, and I usually build in like a week buffer, at, you know, at minimum uh-huh. or more just in case like, you know, a snafu happens. Um, I, I'll then say, okay, based off this final date, I've, I've organized it by week and it'll, it'll be like, you know, week once or Friday of this week, you have, I need the layouts for the you know first chapter one, and then the end of next with the following Friday is like let's get you know the pencils for pages one through five, and then following week is this. So it's laid out very clearly for them, and then I ask them, I'm like, does this work for you? And because if, if they have a different workflow, I'm not, I don't want to screw up their workflow. I'm just like, just you you re-edit it if if I propose it, and if there's sometimes they're like, yeah, that works great, or they're like, uh, I just made some minor changes, and they'll just like adjust the date to the pages because they spend more time in the layout phase. Than they do in the inking page or something like that. I think it's scary when, you know, 30 days go by and you haven't heard anything from any, you know, from the artist, I would think. Yeah, no, that's, it's like, uh, you know, even though they might deliver it 30 days, like, here's everything, but that's a scary 30 days. It is really. scary. And that, like, the thing is, like, you're right. Sometimes they do deliver and it's like, awesome, thanks. Whew, you gave me a... <laughs> but then, like, what's the, the flip side of that is the implications of if we don't... Okay, so now the artist is late. They had some... They were, they were scared to tell us. They, uh, they were sick and whatever. And we we're, like, assuming that they had it. Uh, finished or ready with that because they didn't communicate that to us and now shit we don't have our our pages ready for the magazine and that affects the entire magazine because it's not just a single issue comic right it's yeah magazine so now we had we had you know 20 pages allocated for this one series what do we do to fill that we have to go to print with those so now we're scrambling to move it's that's the sticky situation that becomes very difficult and joe illage is the king of like i don't know how he does it because he has to, as a you know, executive editor, that he's the he's the top dog with mm-hmm. uh, editing. Like, is he tracking all that too? Or I mean, there's like I, this master um, Excel sheet that like has everything broken down from like you know table of, like it's the book map in there, but it has everything from like uh, I think there's 30 issues that are planned out ahead of time that oh, show wow. you like okay this issue 315 it, heavy metal 315 has you know the acts chapter two of six and it says the page count and then whatever and then it's like these are so these are all the serials we have then it shows the one-off shorts then if it's like editorial pieces or interviews or prose whatever it is it's all mapped out page count who, who uh what number it is if it's part of the larger series because again if you move one in a series it affects all of them mm-hmm. right you can't just like move one and then have two in one issue I mean, you can do that but that's not what we're trying to do with the one-offs, are you tracking those differently? I mean, let's say I have a, an eight page that I, you know, it's just going to be a one-off. Do you let the uh, creative team sort of do their thing or are you no, same expecting thing. them deliver? It's just, it's just less like worst case scenario, like that's a lot easier to move without having a true domino effect. 
<laughs> as opposed to moving one in it. Because like I said, if you move one in the serial, all it's like a snake. They all need to move with it. Yeah. Right. And then it affects all the magnets because not every serial is the same page count either. So it can't just be like, oh, let's just swap these two. I don't even know if some artists necessarily realize the impact that they may have, especially in a magazine like ours, if they are like actually late on pages or something like that. And I've always heard that from editors from doing this podcast, and I even think read something about a scenario, an editor's just like, why don't you just call me? I mean, it's like, if you see there's a problem or something happens, you know, everybody knows stuff happens. And if you just explain, you know, have a conversation up front instead of having me, you know, have an editor out there going, what's going on? Or, you know, where are things? Or just delivering the bad news at the last minute so the editor can't really... Um, adjust to the you know oh the pages are coming in late that's the thing that really you know if you have more of a you know warning yeah. you can actually that's, work things that's out my biggest pet peeve is like when I, we get radio silence yeah i'm like uh, we'll, we'll have we have an editorial meeting every monday the core editorial and then we have a larger one on wednesday usually we we on monday we're like where are we at with the with everything like in your you know, whatever, each manager is assigned usually to, to a story or several stories, series, whatnot, content. And we, and we all report into Joe and like, here's where we're at with um, our respective stuff. And then, so every once in a while, I'll be like, so what's going on with this? And like, we're like, we don't know. We haven't heard back in two weeks. I've been, I've reached out to him three different times. So then we decide like, we escalate it. We, is this probably, you know, at this point we are getting a little bit worried so that, you know, it's part of the business. Um, in other cases, it, uh, like how I deal with a, a, an artist or a creative kind of going dark on me for a bit. I, I always try to tell them in the beginning, I'm like, look, I am here to, yes, I work for the magazine, but I also, it's my job to keep my my creative team like happy and and feeling safe and like that this is like a safe place where you, know, you guys can talk to me. So if something happens, if you're behind, tell me, guys. I mean, yeah, I might be upset, but I'm a, I'm a solution-focused guy. Like I, I, me just yelling at you about why you were bad on something doesn't help fix the problem. So first things first for me is like, Let's okay. Tell me what's up, so I can, you know, manage my expectations, my team's expectations, and then we can plan accordingly. I'm going to be way more mad if you wait wait till later until the day of and then tell me, because then now you're screwing. You're really hurting me and the whole magazine. At least if you give me a little, he little more heads up, I, we can plan together. And I generally give you know my artists at least like one, like uh, okay, it shit happens. I understand that you're you know whatever was going on, but you told me quickly, so that's that's cool. If they if they keep repeating that behavior, that's a bigger conversation as to like, can we rely on this artist? Because there's plenty of talented artists that we work with that just you know either overcommit um, and underdeliver where they think they can do more, but they they're scared to kind of tell you that they can't do that. I, I always say like, you know, if this is becoming overwhelming for you where you can't do it, like just communicate. Tell me, we'll figure out a new schedule. If we have enough heads up, we can move stuff around. That's okay. Well, I mean. In comics in general, I think the issue of overcommitting for artists is that, I mean, they don't know where the next job's coming from at times. And when you start getting people approaching you and, you know, you work so hard to get the first job and then if the floodgates open up, why say no? Because now you, you, you're making money and you don't want to, you know, ruin that. So well, it's a, it's a weird, and I, maybe it's, it's a bigger, big, much bigger question than heavy metal or any publisher of just like the the nature of things of freelance the nature of freelance just the nature of this job of this industry and how you know people are paid and and the uh i guess lack of security that comes with being a freelancer too 
you know. Another part of it, I would think, is that like, hopefully the art. I, I totally hear what you're saying, which is like, okay, cool. You, they just got contracted to do, to do a series or or a, a project, and now they get interest from another party that wants to do that. All they need to do, and, and this, I, you know, this goes for any type of creative is like, say, I'm currently working on a project until like, let them know. It's not going to usually turn them off. In some cases, they might pass because like they need something to start immediately. Like, for example, if I reach out to an artist and I'm like, hey, we're, lo- we're looking for an artist for this new, you know, series that we're doing. Um, what's your availability is like? And that's usually the first thing I ask. If they, if they come to me and they say, I can start right away, but they really can't start for a while, or they think they can start right away, but they wouldn't be able to like actually do more than like a page a week or something like, which is really not getting us closer. I just say like, when would you, the next thing I say is like, we're in my initial outreach, it'll be, this is the project we're looking for kind of like just simplifying it, like genre to sci-fi, you know, space odyssey or whatever that follows the little log line or whatnot. And then I'll say it's a, you know, a six part series or six issue run. So we're looking at probably like a, call it like 120 pages, something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, we're looking to do about 16, 14 to 16 pages a month, right? Do you feel like you, is that something that you would be able to do? Like if you could commit, and sometimes they'll tell you yes. And they're, and, and then they're like, cool. And I'm like, all right, when can you start? And they're like, but not for toll, whatever. I'm like, okay, we can put, po- then I, I bring that information or I'll know maybe ahead of time. I'll, like, when does the series need to begin? Can we push the series back by three months so that we can secure the artists we want? In many cases, the answer is yes, right? if we really like an artist for something and we're like, cause, cause finding the right artist is like such a difficult, it's like trying to hire a full-time position for a series. It's one thing for like a, a, a short, but when you're, mm-hmm. you know, you want to find the right person. So we, we might be willing to wait. What I, the last thing we want to do is have the artist commit to a project. And then meanwhile, they're already committed to something else they didn't tell us about. And now they're, they've promised the same workload of 14 pages per week or, or sorry, per month, not week. That'd be crazy. Um, to like, uh, the two different people, and then they can't fulfill both. So they either let both down or they let one down completely and screw it over. What I would say to the artist is you can take the job, just be upfront with them and tell them like when you're free to do the next thing. Because as an editor, your job, one thing that I've learned doing this podcast is that, you know, you, you try to bring half of what 90% of your job. It's like they say about directing is casting the right people, you know, Mm -hmm. getting the right crew together. And then if you get that and that chemistry, as an editor, you feel that the, the chemistry that you need there and the talent you need there, then the project will sort of take care of itself in a way. So willing to wait for somebody who you feel is the right person for that that series, for that, you know, the title is is not an issue really, because it's gonna make it. Is that that's sort of what it is, is that if you're reaching yeah, out to it in a lot of cases there's there's some cases now i i mean there's some cases where we might be between two artists and we're yeah. out simultaneously like just to, to find out like hey what is your availability hey what's your availability we were like uh-huh. it you know it's not like we're trying to play one against the other they don't even know that we're doing that it's just so that if one says i'm not available or i can't do it at all then we go with the other one so i could understand where an artist is like well if i don't say that i'm available for another three months the other guy's available yeah that that runs the risk but at the end of the day like you don't want to it's a small industry. And the last thing you want to do is develop a reputation that you're completely unreliable. You're, you breach contract regularly. Like you need to understand that, like at the end of the day, like we're trying, yes, we are in a pretty fun and creative um, field. I love being able to do this every day, but it's like, ooh, it's a business that they, they need to, if they can't get the pages in, like then 
we can't get the magazine to print to the fans and then people stop reading it or, you know, uh, vendors stop buying it. It's, it's got a, there's a business aspect to it. So. Uh, yeah. People talk, editors talk, everybody, you know, <laughs> people know where somebody might've dropped the ball, even though the public or, you know, in general, they don't know, but yeah, there's, there's talk in the industry and it is such a small industry. So yeah, it is a sort of, you don't um, even know an artist, right. That like, or, yeah. or creator that like constantly like, hurts the the publisher like where it's to the point like where they're just not reliable like i've worked with several talent like super talented artists and I, that, that i'm like oh this is my some of my favorite work i've ever had but i it i can't rely on the artist to deliver the pages on time and it, the amount of stress that brings me and the magazine as a whole is is tough so it's like we you know maybe moving forward you know like we don't use this person again or we we need to, do we need to pivot and find try to find another artist for the series because can't count on this person that's why I, I constantly repeat like communicate just talk to us before we bring in uh your writing partner i wanted to maybe touch upon your origin story a bit because when did you decide to pursue a career in comics i used to work i mean i've had several different careers and jobs throughout my life um yeah. sales and then uh, fitness i was a you know group fitness trainer for a while it's something i still like to do a lot but i, I don't do it anymore i'm full-time creative now um, I think at the time when I first started writing Treadwater, which is my first graphic novel, like I don't know, eight years ago, um, it's almost 10 now. Wow. That's crazy. Time flies. Uh, I was working at, I want to say either like a medical tech company in sales or like an ad agency doing sales and just really wanted to get in to creative, um, specifically at like an ad agency. I wanted to design like campaigns and stuff. But like, that's, it's weird because as a kid, I didn't realize that I could just be like a comic writer. I don't know why I didn't think that that was like a real job for, for someone. And now I'm like, how the, I would have majored in English or in creative writing in, in college if, and pursued that from the get-go. I don't know. Maybe it was just because like, there's not as much money in that or something like that or the, whatever it is, the outside influences. Ultimately, I'm like, I'm unhappy in my current career path and going into a nine to five desk job, not being able to be creative at all. So I started writing. And, and not just thinking, what I think a lot of people do at first is they're like thinking about their book in the world, but not actually starting to like plan and putting on, you know, putting keys to hands to keys or pen to paper, you know. And so once I started doing that, then it, it like became like a, an addiction for me where, or an obsession where I couldn't stop. And I just, all I wanted to do was write and create and do stuff. And then soon after that, like I left my job to just kind of give this a real shot. I was thinking of like 26 at the time, so. Now you're managing editor, art director, and also editing the stories in heavy metal. What's carried over from your previous careers? I would say sales, my sales ability, like just understanding how to like, and like you have to market yourself and sell your own stuff. So like when you're, especially as a writer, you need to early on, you'll need to learn how to like sell your stuff to a publisher or to um, you know, a distributor, whether that's Diamond or someone else. Like, so when you go to a publisher in a lot of cases, you don't just want to give them like, here's my full manuscript. It's usually like, you know, <laughs> and stuff like that. And just, and even understanding sales techniques, sort of like when you reach out is the first time, like not to, you know, making it, it's like a resume, right? If someone notices a typo in your resume, they're like, that's your best, supposed to be like your first impression and something like that. If you can't catch your own typos, you either don't know that they are there, which says that you're not, you know, particularly savvy in that regard, or you didn't have it check properly or you just don't care enough which means you're either lazy or whatever so i didn't used to get that i get that now which is like you know really make sure it's polished in a lot of cases your first impression is your last impression so what i've taken from my my previous roles is definitely like sales 
and then also just like project management and working with a team. I think a lot of um, if 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 you were if I maybe if I was just a writer from the get go, always working from home and never having to like go to an office or have a schedule or something like that, um, where I was around other people, I wouldn't have the same accountability. I wouldn't feel that as much. Um, and then also, I'm extremely organized, uh, and I know how to use like a lot of like Google Suite, you know, from Excel to uh, just the whole G Drive situation. <laughs> store everything on that. We comment on like I pretty much got our company to start using G Drive to like add our notes to one document. So now, if some you know, if we're all edit- going in a magazine, we can all put our notes on one PDF that's shared that everyone you know has. Not everyone, but whoever we want to assign access to can. So those are like some technical stuff that like I pulled from my last job. But most of the creative stuff that I've learned, I've like either learned at while working with other creatives, whether that's at, like when I started Heavy Metal, I was like project manager, that's it. I wasn't even like an editor. I had to like ask to, to be able to sit in or almost sort of like intern in that regard. And then was given like one small project that I did pretty well on. And then was like, with that, with that, like the plus five points that I got from that, that gave my bosses more, you know, confidence to give me another project or a larger one. And then, you know, it's like, oh, this guy can actually do this role. And he's getting, but he's, you know, I like to think I'm, I'm willing to learn and that I don't know everything. I definitely don't. I'm still learning a ton from Joe Illich and uh, David Irwin and Matt Mending and stuff. So I mean, even my other peer editors as well. I learned from artists and creatives too, and like uh, writers too. Every once in a while, I'm like, wow, that was really well done. I, or I asked them too. I'm like, this is the notes that I'm thinking, but I always, if you ever feel like I'm making the artwork worse, tell me, I don't want to, I'm not a dictator. Now at the end of the day, I may disagree with you and say, I appreciate, you know, your, your, your feedback on this, but I, I'm going to go with my initial decision, but I, I do like to have feedback from the, the collaborators. The one thing about like editors, a lot of times they feel like they're underwater with all the projects they have. The, the things that you've set up, have you and like enabled the, to sort of avoid that or feel that you can manage to sort of conquer chaos in a way or, or, and allows you to have more creative freedom with how you've been using technology and what you brought into heavy metal with your organizational skills. Absolutely. When I got here, we didn't have really true digital, like the, the, the previous um, production designer that was with us had all of the files, all of them on his personal like hard drive. We did not have them. So when he left, he had to ship us, like physically mail us the single copy of all of the, the company like archives for years. I got us going. It wasn't solely me. I was involved in the process um, to get the the files like on like a, a cloud pretty much. So yeah. that, right. So that like we had access as a company to it and that one person couldn't handicap or, or bootstrap, you know, the, uh, the company we had to, um, really just like modernize. And then the, the planning that, that Joe, I mean, Joe was here before I got here. So I don't, um, I don't know, not like a whole lot before I was there. I think he came on maybe like a few months before I did, but he had already started like getting it organized by the time that I got there and, um, having it planned out like the magazine being able to like for us, just being able to jump into that same document and like see the thousand foot scope of like, where is this magazine? What does it look like? You know, 10 issues down, something like that. Where, what cover do we have assigned here? What, you know, what editorial piece are we going to do? It, it makes it a lot less stressful because you have a much clearer idea 
And you can also see the, the trickle-down effect if we were to move something. It's like a puzzle. You can be like, oh, I can grab this whole tail, move this to here. But now this is creating more pages. We're like over the 144 page count. So maybe we can take two shorts and move those into this one. Yeah, that'll work. The shorts are great because, like I said, they're, they allow us to fill pieces and with, with great content without yeah. it having a major effect. So they're like they're... You were to think like Tetris, right? It's like bigger pieces with the crazy shapes are much harder to fit, but then you get like just a little square here and there and you're like, oh, that's easy. And that'll fill that little one. I like that. I won't even bother asking, like, do you guys take in consideration the page turns, you know, for stories too? You know, you know, what are we going to see on the next page? Do you actually, I'll make that my last question. When you're doing that, do you get down to the minutia of taking advantage of page turns oh, yeah. and telling a story. So you are considering that when you're putting the magazine together. Going. Sure. Um, it, it creates a suspense from turning. It also can create a beat, right? Yep. Like if you need a moment, like if a scene change or something like that, if you want to give, it's the equivalent of like, if you were watching a movie or a show or something like that, and you wanted like a long, like a, a, a held black for a moment, just to kind of settle the pacing, the page turn does that. In some cases, it also can create like a cliffhanger. Like, for example, if there is a cliffhanger on the next page, you generally don't want to show that on, mm -hmm. the, on the right side of a page. You should want to save that for the left side page for a page turn so that it's, it doesn't spoil it in case someone's eyes jump ahead. So we definitely factor that in. In some cases, like there's, um, we may decide to start something on like a left side page because maybe the story begins on like a panoramic two-page spread, but that's intentional, you know? No, and also um, I've been catching up on some of my heavy metal and there are some two page spreads that are just a, a, amazing because of the size of the magazine. It's like, it's not the same oh, yeah. on a regular comic and I open it up and I'm like, ah, no, this is why I'm, you know, reading this book every month. I mean, I might not like everything, but this moment is worth the price of admission right here. It just because of this format and everything, you know, and the scale that you, you get in the magazine size. I've gotten so used to the magazine size now that when I like switch to like a the standard, <laughs> doesn't know the magazine is, is is actually just larger pages than the comic, and it, um, they're also not just like they're not even the same proportion. So like a, a standard graphic novel or comic page is more narrow, whereas ours are a little little bit more square ish, like you're wider, which allows us to kind of fill up the real estate a little bit more. Yeah, um, usually because if you think about how our eyes are, right, like uh, we see wider, we don't see narrow. At this point, Johnny Handler, Morgan's writing partner, joined us from L.A. to talk about their heavy metal series, Stable, and also their dark horse series, Winds of Numacera. Going back to my original question of how was WonderCon, I guess at WonderCon, uh, the two of you had a panel regarding one of your new stable, uh, series, uh, Stable? And I guess first, before we really get into it, uh, what is Stable all about? I can uh, handle that. I usually do like the original, <laughs> like the general like quick pitch. On that. It's not a super quick pitch, but it's, um, it's a sci-fi, post-apocalyptic um, thriller. Uh, I want you to imagine that a, a black hole sort of randomly shows up right by our sun and immediately starts sort of sapping its hydrogen, right? So now the sun is, is dying very quickly. Earth is going to freeze over in you know a matter of years at this point we can't move to another planet right because it's at least not in our solar system because same sun uh so same sort of result so what do we do we don't have hyperspace travel at this point so a company called astro which is kind of the equivalent of like spacex and nasa 
send out a bunch of satellites into the black hole with like pretty much like a mayday or distress call asking for help uh, in desperation. And ultimately, uh, someone answers the phone or something. Another alien race says that they've helped other planets like ours before, and they send us um, the, the architecture or the blueprints on how to build uh, hyperspace-capable arcs or, or ships. But they'll only uh, host a certain amount of us. So we can pack the ships to the brim, but they can only make three. So now humanity is tasked with deciding who gets to ride on these sort of Noah's arcs, right? The stable of arcs, stable of ships. And um, it's a pretty cool system that they go about, right? One is you want to bring the best or they want to, humanity decides to, Astral sort of holds the keys because they receive the blueprints, right? So they can decide who goes. So it's, it's like bring the best of the best, best um, doctors, best mathematicians, best uh, writers, best actors, best musicians, just the best of us. But we also have to allow them to bring some people that they care about. So everyone gets a plus two. They can bring any two people you want. But then it creates the Sophie's choice of what happens if you have three people in your family or four, you have four kids. Do you leave some behind and make that choice? Um, or do you give up your seat altogether and know that you're going to suffer like a, you know, a doomed fate. So ultimately, um, the story follows two different narratives, the, the, what we call the chosen and then the left behind. The story begins with the, the arcs already, on, like pe the people already on the arcs in space. They're, they're heading towards the Kuiper Belt, which is like the perimeter of our, gal of our solar system, so that we can, we can clear the asteroid field and then jump into hyperspace. So we until we get to that point, we still have contact with Earth. And so the, um, the story, the, the one storyline is the chosen, the other one is the left behind. And the left behind kind of represents, I, I would liken it to like the road, if you've ever seen that movie. It even has a little Walking Dead vibe, but without the zombies. It's just grim and dark, and it's, it's scavengers and every person for themselves back there. Meanwhile, aboard the arcs, it's all sort of like sunshine and rainbows and everyone's excited about this new potential future that they're headed towards as they go to, you know, meet this new alien race that's going to be hosting them that we haven't, we don't get to see until the very end of the, the book. And the cool thing about the story is that every single character, and it's not, there's a lot of characters. It's got an ensemble cast. Every host of characters that you meet is connected to someone on the opposite storyline. So for example, one might be the child that was left behind from like another character and, you know, vice versa. Pretty interesting. Is this is an ongoing or what? Uh... It's a, a three-part trilogy we planned. The first book's finished um, and done. That's the one that just, that just came out in February. It's the first of the three, but there, it's a long, it's a nice size book. I think it's like 134 pages or something like that. I will say one thing. Uh, everyone who's read it was just like, Hey, when's the next one coming out? And we're like, we just, we just delivered four issues for you in a graphic novel. Like you're gonna have to wait a little bit, but uh, yeah, I'm really happy with how that came out, Francis. So when is the next one coming out? Do you have an answer for that, or are you guys just like to take a breather for a moment? We're right now working with the artist to uh, plan out his schedule so we can start up on the next part of the series it's going to be a little bit because it, it takes a little while to to knock out four issues and obviously the art for four issues um but we'll those logistics right now basically i would say best case scenario we're looking at a year just because it's, it's not coming out as a you know single issues and then collected into a trade we just we release it as a giant book and and as people have seen with stable the first one um 
it's more than just the story pages. Like there, we, we do this really in-depth world building where there's a bunch of like fake ads, fake advertisements throughout the entire book. And they're, they're, at first you might just think they're real ads. You're like, why is this popping in the middle of the story? But on further review, you'd be like, oh shit, these are all fake. Like they're for things that only exist in this universe or in this world. Um, we've been told like that's like one of people's favorite things. And it's, by the way, this little device that we do, these fake ads is kind of like a hero projects, um, original. It's, it's something that Johnny, myself, Matt and Pete, AKA Voodoo Bones do with all of our books. So stable is one of, I think five we have coming out in, in our initial, uh, what we're calling the hero Onyx line. The Onyx are, uh, our original stories for context, by the way. So Johnny and myself. Matt, who's the CEO of, of Heavy Metal. He's also the CEO of Hero Projects. And then Pete Voodoo Bones Russo, um, the four, we call ourselves like the core four. We started with Hero. Hero is a custom comics company where we, an animation studio where we write and create original comic and animated series content for brands, musicians, um, athletes, celebrities, uh, studio, movie studios, you name it. And it was our success, early success doing that stuff that actually got Matt on heavy metals radar when they were looking for a new CEO. Mm-hmm. They saw what we were doing with Hero and like, ooh, that's really cool stuff. And they met with Matt. Matt's a G. He's awesome. And he's just really creative and a great businessman. And as, as a real visionary, honestly. Don't let him hear me say all this good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so he got he got nabbed or, or tabbed as the new CEO of Heavy Metal, but was like, I'm not, I just want to be clear, I'm not stepping away from here. And they're like, no, you don't have to. Like, we want you to continue doing both. So um, we've sort of become like a, an unofficial sister company, I would say, right, Johnny, of uh, Heavy Metal? So like where now we, we, a lot of, we've decided to publish our original line. So where Hero started just creating content for others, now that we've kind of built up our brand, we're like, we want to just, now let's make the stories that we want to write for us and stable as well. So for, uh, when we got hit with COVID, it also affected our business because we deal with marketing budgets and COVID pretty much uh, shrunk everyone's budget. So we were like, well, what do we do right now? So we came up with an idea to create our own original content. We work with our agency partners, such as Tomato Farm, to uh, um, craft uh, some new concepts and some new um, stories. And working with them, we paired up with artists that uh, we're interested in doing that too. And therefore, uh, here we are with Stable, one of the first of those um, partnerships. And uh, we're very happy. And it sounds like with with Stable, you have a, a very European-like or French-like uh, delivery, which everybody's used to. You know, you get one book a year, you know, a huge book, and, and there's a lot of pages, and it's worth the wait usually. Is that something that you realized you were doing or that you approached this project like do, being able to do that of having, you know, do up the four issues, but deliver it in one package, take a break, do up another for the second part, and then take another break and then do the the third part, you know, over the course of three years. Was that something you, did you think up, up front or was it something you realized, you know, yeah, as you were in the process? We were definitely thinking of that up front as we, we knew that, so first off, as far as the artists are 
concern. We work with people from everywhere. I mean, I, I've I've worked with someone in pretty much every continent except Antarctica at this point. Mm-hmm. From like a, from like a talent pool, we don't we don't. In Antarctica, uh, and you're looking for work. Got <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some downtime. It's the, one, <laughs> the one place, the one, the one continent so far we haven't worked with. Um, but the reality there is, you know, you you see. You, the cool thing about that is you get to see how other countries work from that standpoint. And since we've worked with a lot of agency partners that are based in Europe, that's that's definitely what we saw um, from other companies. And we were like, oh, like this would make a lot of sense. Um, I feel like the comic space is moving towards that sort of, hey, provide more content. Like we don't necessarily need those single issues for particular stories. Um, I know where that fits in with, you know, the, the giants that be DC and Marvel, but when you're a smaller company like us, it doesn't necessarily make financial sense to put out single issues for our stories. Um, so we took that approach, uh, in mind, when we were doing the Onyx originals with, uh, heavy metal. Well, I think you're backing off. Oh, sorry. What were you going to say? Well, the success that, uh, the one, if you know, of, uh, Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips, Reckless, even though that comes out, I think they deliver two books a year just because of their speed. But they definitely were looking at the European model. And if they wanted to slow down with Reckless and just do one a year, they probably would be able to get away with that easily. But I think other creators, you know, an image and you guys are, are looking at, it is a very viable approach to delivering, you know, stories to people. And I think the market, you know, definitely rewarded Brubaker and Phillips. And you were saying that the first part of Stable is doing really well, too. I think what it comes down to it is if you're doing like how we how we see it, we want to do like multiple drops in a year for different stories so that it doesn't feel like we're only delivering on one. And then you're waiting for us for, you know, something out else out of Hero. Um we're going to have a bunch of different stories dropping throughout the year. So at least, uh, yeah, you are waiting on that particular story for the next one to come out, but there'll be other content as well. So that's kind of our, that's kind of our approach right now. I would liken it to like the Netflix sort of streaming, like binge binge dump type thing where it's like, you get them all at once kind of thing. And then, yeah, you got to wait a while, but at least you can like just go in and binge on the series kind of thing. As opposed, like on a business level, Johnny hit on this. If you're Marvel in DC and, and you have the the brand recognition and like they're all of their IPs for the most part, their series and stories are extremely well known. They have a a, a very large tuned in fan base. They will easily gobble up the next single issue that comes out. But when you're launch, when you're a smaller company like ours, that's sort of you know relatively unknown and unheard of, and we're dropping or introducing a new series to the marketplace, uh, a new story. It's, people aren't necessarily just going to go and get the the first one if it was like a single issue and then keep like the amount of marketing that would have to go into every single issue to keep it going and when, without you know attrition and losing readers along the way uh, or even trying to gain more along the way. We we thought we made that like kind of a business decision. We thought it would be smarter for us to sort of okay, let's think of the price points here. We're looking at maybe six to seven dollars with that if it was a single issue for twenty pages for just like a small in you know. Uh, introduction of the series versus oh you know for like 25 dollars or something like that 
they can get a gigantic book that's like really self-contained, uh, self-contained and it feels like uh, very satisfactory or um, satisfying, rewarding, whatever it is when you get to the end of it. We thought that that was like a smarter move. Idea, and just so you know as well, the artists, like we didn't get paid up front by a publishing company for this. The artists didn't either. It was sort of, it's all done with like the, the hope of the back end piece. So as far as timing goes, right? Unlike a, a traditional series that, that would be single issue at like a Marvel or DC where the artists and the writers are getting paid every month upon, you know, deliverable of the stuff, we, we couldn't get paid until afterwards. So we needed to make sure that the writing doesn't take nearly as long as the artwork for obvious reasons. So the, we had to kind of work around the artist schedule as well, which is why the book took a year versus six months or something like that. Because they're, you know, they need to feed themselves and pay their bills. So they're working on this out of true passion, which is also pretty cool, by the way, if you think about it, that everything that was done in this book was solely based off of passion and not dollar sign. And because you have the schedule, it allows them to participate in something and just yeah, it's be, wide, it's be there. wider. We, we still set a schedule. We're like, this is the goal, the target date. We always ask, um, you and I discussed this a little bit earlier before Johnny joined, but as as part of the process, we, we work with the artists. They, Does this, let's set a schedule, but you tell us what works for you. Right. And it, it's, it's not like, what is the most you can do per week and only working on a project? It's like, we understand you have to take on other projects to, you know, pay your bills and stuff. What can you manage on this? And it's a big commitment, right? It's like, it's 130 something pages for the artist. Now they, they own a chunk of the, the story, which is cool. They're a co-creator in this, which is great, but they don't, you know, they're not getting paid up front at all. They only get, and if the, the book tanks or something like that, and we, you know, we have to, we barely get anything from it. It's, it's a risk. But it's one that we thought we all collectively felt was worth taking. Um, the response for the first book, Stable, and like, has been phenomenal. It's one of Heavy Metal's top-selling graphic novels ever. Um, and uh, it's the first from the Hero Suite, which is pretty cool, the core four. And we have like four other ones, I think, coming out in the next you know, calendar year, so, or even less than that. And with some, you know, have the time in between, you're able to um, sort of, think about not only how do we market part two, you know, what were the successes and what might you might be able to fine tune. And uh, also you're able to come back obviously with, uh, is winds of Numa Sarah. You both have like really jump into the world building on both that series and stables. So you're like, where are we going with the world building where, you know, what it seems like having a year off, allows you to really fine tune your approach on the next project and, you know, and take advantage of what you've created previously and what you've done previously, but really, you know, what can you bring to the, the next one? And of course, what can you bring to the third part too? You know, it gives you that breathing room to really maybe analyze, I guess, for, uh, of your success and then see how do you, you know, build upon that. Well, full disclosure, we, every st- series we go into, we, there's an exorbitant amount of planning that goes in before we yeah. start writing a script. So like with Stable in particular, we set the stage with the world building. Okay, what's going to... And then we, we try to plan the entire direction of the series. Like, where is this going to end? Even So for example, like we have we know what happens in two and three. We don't have it like outlined scene by scene yet, but overarching storylines, like what is the general themes and where are we going to... Who are the characters we're meeting? What storylines are we following in two and three that's already been decided so it's it, when you say like take a break and reassess like what resonated with certain audiences sure like we'll, we'll work some of that piece of it in but we've already written like 
the script for Stable was done, I want to say, like, eight months ago. And then it's in the artist's hands at that point. So we immediately pivoted. Instead of going right into to two, we just went to a different series uh, and did the same thing, rinse and repeat for, like, five different series and, and then some. Plus, meanwhile, we're, you know, now that pandemic is, we're out of that pretty much for the most part, um, at least all the heavy stuff where like businesses have reopened and marketing budgets have come back and festivals have, have begun, like resumed. We now have the hero sort of like custom comics that have picked back up again. So we've just been writing and creating content left and right. Um, everything is planned well in advance. And then once once we write the scripts, it goes to the artists. And we pretty much are, we, I think the overall, Johnny, correct me if I'm wrong here. I think that the overall mentality is like, before we decide to move forward on the second book, let's see how the first book did. Um, we yeah, all- we wanted to definitely get an idea of, of <clears throat> popularity on the series. Um, we just don't jump in willy-nilly. <laughs> we feel like they kind of, you know, throw the rock in the pond and see how it ripples. So, but yeah, we, we do really like where Stable's going. We're investigating right now logistics around the next book, so... We'll let people know when we're ready to go on that. Like sales have definitely been good enough with this book for anyone who's wondering, like where where it mer- it warrants us doing a second one, which is great because that was the first one. And I would imagine that uh, the more that the word kind of gets out now, especially with the other ones that titles we have coming out, like even with so we can now sort of pivot over to Winds of Numisera. Winds of Numisera is a story that was not done by Hero, wasn't the core four. It was two of the four, but um, independently. So Johnny and myself created Winds of Numisera, which is our dark medieval fantasy epic. And it's coming out. We published it through Dark Horse. We had an opportunity to publish it through through Heavy Metal, but um, in speaking with Matt, who was all about it, he was like, yeah, I love the story. I'm going to do it. We just wanted to diversify a little bit. And instead of putting every single story we did, we ever made through Heavy Metal, we're like, well, maybe we'll take this one and 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 run it through uh, Dark Horse just to kind of, you know, see if we can get that viewership over too, because it's you know, not exactly the same fan base. And if someone over there saw it and was like, oh, that's really cool. Hey, what else have these guys done? They Google it and they're like, oh, they got a bunch of books with heavy metal and then it's cool. And vice versa. That's kind of like our hope. The level of world building that went into Winds of Nubisera is also like un- unmatched. I mean, when when you see this book, first of all, it's a 224 page book. It's big. And the artwork is incredible. It features artwork from Philippe Andrade, who did um, uh, The Many Deaths of Layla Starr. Uh, it's got um, Eduardo uh, Pe- Edward Edward Petrovich, who has done some work, I think, with X Men and Marvel. It, really gorgeous, gorgeous pages. The colorist Valentina Tadeo is now has been gobbled up since by uh, Disney. Like we 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 found her and we're like, whoa, this colors is awesome. And you'll see the colors are absolutely incredible in the book. And uh, we had like an original uh, like map built. Um, character like we had character concept art done before it began um there's so much that went into this book we created a religion um mythology over it there's there's different sort of like cultural um traditions that that each region has sigils all that fun stuff and then obviously the characters themselves it's a it's a big world but it's a tight lens focuses on three main storylines from different parts of the kingdom you have a child empress that's 13 years old and, and an orphan now as both of her parents have died and she's the last of her her bloodline and is inheriting the kingdom when the the empire is like almost on the verge of collapse a lot of them you know vulnerability and then you have like uh this this baron's daughter who's 
she could have been queen or, or princess or whatever, but her father had sort of like bent the knee to the empress um, or her father at the time. And now she doesn't even care about it. She doesn't want to be princess or queen. All she wanted to do is, is, is have the same rights as, as men in some cases. And she wanted to be a knight, but there's no like women allowed in the Numisaran military or, or army. So now she can't be that. And she's just kind of on this mission to rebel and find her own path. And then you have um, Sorsha, who's like this, uh, almost like a barbarian from the from the south, kind of a little Viking barbarian, like. And their people have a very different mindset as to how they live, and they're all about you know sort of conquering and in, in uh, if you can take it, it's yours kind of thing, which isn't too dissimilar from the rest of the world. But they're from the south, and they're sort of fighting against Numisera as a whole. And he wants to change the ways of his people, but in there he can't because his father is the champion of their people. And in order to become champion, you have to be the best warrior, and he's not at the moment. So, you know, that's high level stuff. But overall, the the three storylines um, they seem separate at first, and they are, but they ultimately weave together. It's called Winds of Numisera because you know winds change direction, they swirl, and it's it's meant to be. If you look at the cover of the book, which is pretty cool, you'll notice like our sigil or like the uh, emblem of the series, the logo is like a circle with like three swirling winds, and then inside each wind circle, it's like a different storyline. They all kind of like spin together, which is cool. With all this world building for both series, I mean, it's what makes the stories really unique. The world, and you you makes it immersive but one thing when do you start like go okay we've done enough world building we've you know even built you know created a new religion for uh, for winds when do you go how do we zero in how do you keep the world building from taking over the story you want to tell i guess my maybe one question i can ask to get this going is what comes first is it the world building and the idea of having a black hole next to our sun or these kingdoms fighting for, you know, survival, does that come first? Or is there a story about an individual within those worlds that you want to tell? And then you want to, then you go back and sort of really build these worlds up. What comes first? <laughs> no, really in a way. Donnie, would, you, would you say, I mean, like, I think it depends almost on like the story uh, what kind of story we want to tell because the way that it usually works with, with uh, the core four from hero is we'll have a creative session and we'll just say like hey i kind of wanted to tell a story that follows this like an individual one of us will usually pitch just like a simple concept sometimes it's world first focus or it's like event focused so with with stable it was like hey what happened if like a black hole just showed up outside of our sun right like people have, like we've seen black holes in space right like we've like they're like it, there's no real explanation just kind of remembers like well what happened if that just kind of happened by our son and like what would happen and then we just snowballed it from there and everyone kind of pitched ideas with winds of numisera johnny and i want to hear your thoughts on this i feel like it was more we knew we wanted to do like our a story in like a medieval fantasy world because johnny and i have always loved that kind of just genre in general like you know whether it's like game of thrones and westeros and essos or if it's middle earth and lord of the rings we just like that setting but we didn't want to do something that was that had been done before. Like we didn't want to use elves or dwarves because we felt like those were just common. Like we've seen that before. So we were So yeah, I can see where the world building needs to come in because you just really want to break away and make something different 
but that's within the genre. So, and then from there though, once we had the, 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 the setting that you're right. I mean, like for me, it's always characters first. And so like Johnny, I remember when we were talking about the child, we, we both like the movie, um, uh, never ending story. Right. A lot. So th- I always liked the idea of this child empress. And I was like, they had like a child, they had the childlike empress in their story. They didn't really explore it too much or explain much of it, but she was like, like, why is the child in charge? And, and then we were like, well, what if we actually like delve into that more and created, you know, like think about how like the world on the pressure of the world on a child's shoulders that, that has the autonomy to do everything, but she's not like a spoiled little brat here. She has no one, like her family is gone. Like in in uh, Game of Thrones, like you know, he had brothers and sisters, right? Joffrey, I'm talking about, and had uh, his mom there. It's like, okay, let's remove all that and really make this character feel alone. So that was like that's uh, Johnny, at least for me, like the where we were kind of starting with with Lelia, and then um, yeah, I mean, I would say for wins in particular, we and I agree with Morgan. I think depending on the story it really delves in uh, as far as like what we do first, it really depends on the idea. But in regards to answering your question, Francis, for wins, I think it was definitely a world first. And the reason why it was a world first was because we needed to create the, you know, logically how this world actually functions and, and why it does. Cause one of the things that I'm a, a big proponent of is not having those kind of question moments when you look at a story because everything has to be logical within the story. Like something I, um, I can't you have to be able to buy it. Standard Okay, with sometimes where I'm, I'm I don't want to be kicked out of a story because I have a question about well, wait that didn't make sense. Like even if your world is based on you know floating bubbles and you having to eat them to stay alive, like you have to have a logic behind that. Like why? Why would someone do that? And if you have a question, bubbles, you know, the bubble like provide, you know, is it actually like a fuel source for them? Right. That's kind of where you're getting at. Yeah, exactly. So like, you know, it can't just, you can't just have a question and you can't kind of have an aside to yourself while reading a story because you don't understand why that thing's occurring. And that, that's something we, we (laughs) try to avoid at all times. Um, and uh, that's, I think, part of why we had to do kind of this world building process with wins because it could lend itself to that. And um, but once we had it, it also is a great tool for why characters do the things they do. Um, it helps us make decisions in the moment when we are presented with them for our characters, like, okay, based on where they are in their history in the world, who they are, why they're there. What, what would this person say? And that definitely helped in uh, us crafting this story. For example, like if, if we, we spent a lot of time, like we said, like kind of crafting the, the history of the world and the regions and, their, and the, the different cultures. So same way you would see like in real life, if you had like ancient, the ancient Romans or I don't know, like the um, old Jerusalem, even things like that, or things that related to the Old Testament versus the New Testament and things like that how it influences different um, regions and, and peoples, right? Who feel like they may have right over certain land and, and people in some cases, slavery, how that, how they view other people, they value life that isn't their, of their same, you know, skin tone and reflect, you know, things like that. It, we wanted to parallel a lot of those, those real tangible visceral elements 
into our story as well, but find a way to make it make sure it still felt like not like it, it has to feel fantasy, but it also has to feel familiar enough, which is a good thing. So when we laid the foundation for all the different like you know cultures and whatnot, then it was like okay, now who are, who's the story we're telling? What's the, let's pick one. Like it can't just be like ten different characters in this one. It's like no, we're going to pick one from each sort of kingdom or story, and they all need to feel like they're telling a slightly different story from a different perspective so that we're not just seeing the same thing in three different places. And also what we were talking about sometime when we, uh, at the beginning of this interview about giving an artist, uh, a direction or, or an idea instead of going, you have a free for all by building the world. You're also creating the rules of the world. Basically. Oh, that, that's the and that's Johnny was saying. Yeah. Yeah. It's like getting what's yeah. our rules. What's the rules for not only our characters, but for us and where we can go? Like, does magic can do? exist, or is it like, is that a thing in our world, or no? Uh-huh. Or is it like, and I, we found we we kind of landed on um, when the story begins. There is no magic. There is no like everything that's fantastical. There's no dragons or any of that. It's all sort of like myth in their world. Like you're not sure if it existed, but the storybooks, their religion, their Bible speaks of. <laughs> The things called essentials and pools of essence, which is like these like sort of like fountains of youth. And you're not really sure, but they celebrate it. They have these almost like Macy's Day Parade. It's called the Walk of Ascension every single year that like tells the story of like what it's history. It's the same way like in the Bible we read about like, you know, um, Moses and, or in the Torah and like Moses and, um, you know, the Red Sea and things like that or, you know, Jesus walking on water. It's yeah. like, did that happen actually like or is it a is a manifestation or like an interpretation of what happened and you're kind of not sure and and same goes for like the people of new Samaria. some of them are like yes that actually happened that's what the books say and other people like ah it's an interpretation you're not sure but as the story unfolds and and we get deeper into it you're like oh this was that that part of it is real and you get to see like the real truth just kind of neat so when does winds come out again june 7th june 7th and it's from dark horse Yep, available everywhere books are sold. And we're talking like Barnes and Noble, Amazon, Walmart, Target. You can pre-order it right now. So I like it. Yeah, you can pre-order it now. Oh, yeah, you can. You would a be copy of the, of the first print run, which we always say is like you can get a first print run. It's a gorgeous book. I think it's only like twenty-five bucks, and it's giant, and it's a great, you know, like a great read. Um, at the very least, like you'll enjoy the artwork, if you, but I think you'll you'll appreciate the whole the whole shebang. And Stables is out right now. And you can, get that, right now. you can get, get that through Heavy Metal's website, too, and anywhere. 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 Amazon, it's, yes, it's a, it's published through Heavy Metal, but, like, you know, distributed through uh, Simon & Schuster. So, um, yeah, if you go to Simon & Schuster website, too, and just look up Stable Heavy Metal, you should find it, and you can pick any of the places you want to get it. Is there anything else you guys, like, I just got a couple more minutes. Anything else you would like to say about these two, I mean, just epic series in a way the way you know the just the world building and, and just how epic they are i don't know maybe like if you know if, you're, if you need if your budget's t- uh, tight and you want to check out one of the two uh, you know if you're more sci-fi go with stable if, if you're more you know fantasy um dark fantasy medieval fantasy that kind of stuff like if you like lord of the rings and game of thrones i would say lean on the side of of um winds of numacera both books are excellent um winds is a larger book about twice the, the size. Awesome. So, hey, guys, uh, thank you very much for coming on and spending, like, the last 90 minutes. Johnny, I hope you're feeling better. 
and you're yeah. finally able to escape from LA. Yeah, totally. Well, thank you, Francis. And thank you for having me on the show. You're welcome.